It's 1954 in Detroit, and we were in a recession. Tens and thousands of Detroit auto workers experienced prolonged layoffs and needed to rely on unemployment pay and secondary jobs. But industry officials and civic leaders denied that there was a recession, blaming any problems on negative thinking, and tried to convince the public that unpredictability in the auto industry was normal and should be of no great concern. Well, many Detroiters blamed working women and Southern white and black immigrants for the high unemployment rate. Automation contributed to joblessness, while some UAW skilled workers did benefit from building new machinery. The demise of independent automakers and local auto suppliers resulted in thousands of additional lost jobs. While many auto workers returned to work late in the year, many remained concerned about how long the upswing would last. Hmm. It seemed that this led to the eventual white flight from Detroit to the northern suburbs. Well, in our family in 1954, our brother, Kevin, number 13, not just a number, is nine months old. And mother is, you know what, and the baby is due in February. Mother said it seemed as though she was carrying the baby under her left rib. She did some research and found out that this is where her spleen is located. Oh, my spleen, my spleen, my mother would often lament. December came, and Mother was in her usual panic over Christmas gifts. She said that she was so grateful when her Uncle Bill O'Brien in Oswego came to the rescue and shipped clothes to us one evening in mid-December. Now, it's December 18th, and our parents had plans to go to St. Bernard's to play pinochle with Father Rourke and his housekeeper, Rose LaRose. Mother felt uneasy and hated to, but turned down the offer. Then Father Fidawa stopped by. He had just returned from a Christmas party and was laden with candles and cookies and fruitcakes. He wanted to leave them for the kids. He was visiting with our father, and mother came in and sat down and listened to them talk, but she recalled that they seemed far away. When she said, I feel strange, Father Fidoa took one look at her and literally dashed out the door, lickety-split. Well, mother was reluctant to call Dr. Henderson and tell him how strangely she felt, but finally she acquiesced. She told him about her odd feelings, but that she was in no pain and not due for two more months. But, he said, head to Eastside General Hospital immediately. By the time she arrived, she was in labor. Dr. Henderson was always there if he could be, and Mother thanked God that he was. It was about 11 o'clock in the evening when a baby girl was born. Then... Dr. Henderson became quite animated, almost hysterical, yelling, It's a double header! It's a double header! Waking up most of the patients on the floor. And so, another baby, a boy, came into the world. Dr. Henderson called for incubators. Mother panicked and begged the nurse to baptize them. But the nurse said, Listen, they are tiny, but they are perfect. Dr. Henderson said, Mary and Joseph, 
They have to be called Mary and Joseph. Mother was so stunned that she agreed. Mary Cecilia, number 14, not just a number, was two and a half pounds. Joseph Henry, number 15, not just a number, was four pounds. Dr. Henderson admitted to Mother later that the staff was really worried when she arrived because they weren't able to get a heartbeat. He explained that was because Joseph was on his stomach, rib to rib, and crawled under him was Mary, yours truly. Mother wanted to see her babies, but the doctor said, in the morning. Around 10 a.m. the next morning, a reporter and a photographer from the Detroit Free Press came to the hospital. So, the first time Mother held the twins was when the photograph was taken. Mother came home from the hospital Christmas Eve. She said that it was very surreal. She could hear our brother Kevin crying in his crib as he was cutting teeth, but Mother was frozen on the couch and couldn't get to him. The next morning on Christmas Day, she called her mother-in-law, Nana Callahan, and said, Nana, I never dreamed I would have twins. Well, Nana replied, you certainly tried hard enough. After four weeks, Joseph came home, a feisty five pounds. He took residence on the buffet in the dining room, and two weeks later, I came home and was enthroned in the living room. Mother said that Joseph was very wiry and incredibly strong. He turned from his back onto his stomach and back again when he was only eight weeks old, amazing the entire family by his great physical prowess. Mother said that I was like a baby doll, and although she really thought life would be a nightmare going from 13 to 15 kids, the beat went on. Well, with the exception, of course, of the dreaded sleep loss. Brutal. But Mother did say that we were good babies and thriving. Our dear sister Margaret Virginia, number one, not just a number, wrote a story, December 1954, about the day, night, my twin brother and I were born. Please listen to Katie, Margaret's first granddaughter, narrate her grandmother's story. Margaret, your mother doesn't look good, Dolores Murphy commented as we walked to school. I wanted to run back and take a look at her. My mother was seven months pregnant, and I hadn't noticed anything except, of course, a change in size. She does mention her spleen once in a while. I swallowed the words along with my concern. We were on our way to school for play practice. Dolores giggled. Do you believe we're going to be angels? I sure don't feel like an angel, I said, my loafers sopping up slush. We were seniors, and it was tradition to end the Christmas play with a nativity scene and as many angels as the stage would hold. Sister Brigetta was standing at the top of the stairs. You ladies can help by putting the little girls in two orderly lines. She emphasized orderly as her red eyebrows furrowed. We nodded. Yes, sister. As we split the chatting, shoving little girls and tried to maintain order as we waited for our entrance. Only one more practice remained, and sister was not pleased with the action on stage. My little angels were mesmerized as sister shouted directions and had the shepherds repeat their lines. 
Finally, our moment came and Sister signaled us back to stage for our entrance. As we climbed the few steps backstage, Philip Adada, leaning on his shepherd's staff, whispered, Margaret, what's on your back? I fell for it and looked over my shoulder. I thought I saw angel wings, he smirked. Smiling, I put my finger to my lips. Shh. I hear if you don't grow them soon, Sister will nail some on you. Before I could answer, we heard Sister scream, Where's Philip? He had missed his cue. Half running, half walking, I made it home in three minutes. I had cut through the alley and into the backyard. I asked my sister, Kathy, where's mother? Upstairs, napping, she told dad to cancel their pinochle game tonight. As I made a peanut butter sandwich, I surveyed the remains of lunch in the kitchen and dining room. I had 12 brothers and sisters, and every meal required vast preparations and cleanup. Kathy and I were separated by four brothers and seven years. She was relieved and surprised when I helped her with her turn to clean up after lunch. As we dried the last dish, Mother came down from her nap, holding her side. As I studied her face, I thought, Dolores is right. She doesn't look good. Her coloring was sallow, and her eyes were not their usual vivid brown. Instead of showing concern, I told her about Sister Brigetta and her angels and shepherds. That night, Dad woke me up with a tap on the foot and the words, We're going. I sat right up. Where? The hospital. By the time I slipped on my robe, I could hear the car back out of the driveway. As I became fully awake, fear churned my stomach. I tiptoed in the big boy's room and woke up John. Get up. Mother's in the hospital. Something must be wrong. John was next in age, and he didn't always heed my commands, but he followed me downstairs. We walked and talked and tried to keep quiet. I kept glancing at the clock, and the hands didn't seem to be moving. John had to take the bus in the morning to the seminary, so we returned to bed. But sleep wouldn't come. The next thing I knew, however, was the front door creaking open. I ran to the landing on the staircase. Dad was at the bottom of the steps. He said, Twins. I grabbed the railing, my knees buckled. It took a minute to sink in. Twins. Is mother all right? Yes, he was grinning. She's fine, and you have a new brother and sister. I crept in bed and pulled the covers tight. My mind was quickly in gear with thoughts of Christmas, one week from today. Shopping to do, clothes to sort, shoes to polish, always cleaning, and, oh no, the play. Sister was counting on help with her little angels. Twins. Watching everyone's reaction was a study as they came down for breakfast. The boys were pleased that they still outnumbered the girls. The two oldest, John and Paul, left for buses to school. They were followed by Jimmy, Brian, Kathy, Ed, and Bill, and then three little girls, Anne, Trisha, and Claire. While I tended to Christopher and Kevin, three years and 18 months respectively, the little girls had many questions. Where will we put them? Where will we get the beds? What are their names? Will mom be home for Christmas? Is Santa Claus still coming? The school-aged children trudged out the door in boots and mittens. I was left with three little ones. They amused themselves by playing romper room. After cleaning up the dining room, I went downstairs to start the daily round of wash loads. I heard the phone ring. Claire's voice piped, someone rang the doorbell. I could see Claire open the door just as I got back upstairs to answer the phone, but no one was there. I picked up the phone. I'm calling from the news, and since you have twins, we want to do a story. 
How did they know? You'll have to call later and talk to my father. Okay, we'll call later. The front door wasn't shut tight, so I rechecked the porch. A brown sack of candy was sitting there. Scrawled on the side of the bag were the words, From St. Joseph. I quickly slid the bag behind the coats in the foyer. The candy would be plenty to fill the stockings. I believed in St. Joseph, and I mentally thanked him and whoever left the sack. The phone rang again. This time it was Franny Brown, my mother's childhood friend from our old hometown out of state. Ever since we had moved, she had come every Christmas as soon as school let out. She was a drama teacher and a take charge kind of person. She told me her train would be in at 2.20 p.m. the next day. I was anxious to have her join us as I knew she would have the solutions to the little holiday crises. Dad was the director of music at two neighborhood churches. His day started early with masses and went late with rehearsals and services. He came home for lunch and told me I could go to play practice when Paul got home from school. When I entered the auditorium, everyone gathered around and asked questions about the twins. Sister Brigetta approached and signaled me into the hall. They should be called Mary and Joseph. I'll tell my mom and dad. Practice went without a hitch. Even Philip paid attention except to whisper, certainly your parents will quit now. That night, while Dad was at the hospital, I bathed the little ones. Kevin and Christopher were especially busy little boys, so they were asleep by 8 o'clock. Then it was time to bathe and shampoo the three little girls. Anne was slight of build with long fingers and a delicate face. Trisha was round and blessed with tight blonde curls. Claire had wide set eyes and huge dimples. As I was shampooing Anne's hair, I said, when you get out of the tub, I'm going to cut your hair, and if we can find bobby pins, set it. Her eyes widened with concern. Will I be pretty? You are pretty, and when I'm through with you, you will be beautiful. I put the scissors down to view my handiwork. Before I could pick up the brush, I heard, ouch! Trisha was trying to cut Claire's hair. All right, you guys, I'm going to give you all brush haircuts. All three began giggling. After the girls were tucked in bed, I checked on Ed and Bill in their homework. I gave them paper and pencil and told them to write their Christmas list. The two of them sat at the dining room table in conference. I was trying to get a list of gift ideas because Paul and I were going downtown after school the next day. By the time Franny arrived, neighbors, friends, and people with Christmas spirit had left three hams and five turkeys. I took Franny up to the third floor, an unfinished cold attic. One of the turkeys was in an old rocking chair, creaking back and forth ever so slightly in the chilly draft. The thought of stuffing and cooking one of those turkeys scared me, but Franny would know what to do. The night of the Christmas play was frantic. Boots, leggings, and coats had to be stored in the closet. Flowing gowns had to be adjusted and wings pinned and strapped on the little girls. Dolores and I rouged their cheeks and set a circle of tinsel on each head. Hanging onto the railings and hitching up their skirts, our little angels climbed the stairs to the auditorium. The audience breathed an ooh as the curtain opened on our final scene. My heart stood still as Mary placed in the manger the little doll representing baby Jesus. Questions went to mother through dad and we were told she would be home two days after Christmas and Mary and Joseph as soon as they maintained five pounds of weight. Christmas Eve came and the little ones had a hard time containing their excitement. Jimmy and Brian had lugged home from the corner lot the biggest tree they could find. Franny told her annual Christmas story and we hung our stockings. 
After Dad and the boys in the choir left for church, it was time to put out the presents. Kathy helped me place the presents under the tree. What Paul and I couldn't carry home, the store had delivered. There were also outfits for each of us from my grandparents. Everything seemed to be ready. Even the manger was waiting for the arrival of Jesus. But I knew something was wrong. Kathy, I said, it just isn't going to be Christmas without Mother here. The doorbell rang. Kathy said, maybe it's another turkey or more presents. I opened the door. There stood the most beautiful woman. Oh, Mother. Now, have a listen as my wombmate, my twin brother, my better half, and I share memories and musings on what it was like being one of 18 and the only set of twins. I cannot remember life without Joseph and hope I never have to. The world is always a better place with Joseph Henry, number 15, in it. By the way, I know... I know. It is obvious who received the great acerbic Irish wit and all the brains. We're the only set of twins. Everyone, remember, would always say, are there any twins? <laughs> and yeah. we'd say, I am. Yes. And I'd say, I'm number 14, and you? 15, and I was a prenatal gentleman. <laughs> That's right, you were. <laughs> yeah. I always felt kind of special that we were one of 18, but I did feel like it was extra special that we were the only set of twins. Yeah, I think it's always an interesting thing about the family and being twins. That's, uh, you know, we don't have really anything to compare it to, right? Right. But you did get the sense that both were special, that the size of the family was obviously unusual, and uh, the fact that we were the only twins was was interesting too. Yeah, I was always very proud of the fact, and I always loved our names, being born a week before Christmas. Mary and Joseph. That's what Uncle Chuddy would say, yes, right? exactly right. <laughs> so Joey, we're twins. December 18th, 1954, baby. And, uh... Wait a minute, is it 54 Well, yeah, whatever. 64. I mean, what, I, I never was good at math, Joe, okay? You were the accountant and the mathematician. <laughs> 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 no. you remember Mom saying... Look. She couldn't add. She couldn't add, but she sure could multiply. Yeah. Uh huh. Was it was good. Go uh -huh. to punch lines. And the other one, I got rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> but the real blessing, I think, is you and being a twin to you. Um, you know, again, it's obviously from birth, but uh, so you, there was never a time growing up that we weren't together. We weren't. Really together, right? Yeah, and, and I always and thought, even as we became adolescent, and you know, you have to go your separate ways in some right. ways. Yeah, um, I always, you know, it's just there's a bond. Like, it's a, yeah, yeah. And there's a even a. I know they talked about when we were kids about we had our own language. Even you know, we communicated in different ways, and we, but we were a package. We know, were a package right? deal, right? and we so, will be until forever. Yeah. Yep. So being twins is again hard to compare. I don't even know what it would be like. What it would be like? It's really hard for me to yeah. imagine. I can imagine being in a different family easier than I can imagine being uh, not a not a twin. Mother loved to tell the story, and I don't remember it. But when I think we were in seventh or eighth grade at Holy Name, and um, we were doing Christmas Carol. And I was like the ghost of Christmas past or something. And then you were Mr. Fuzzy, Fuzzy Wing. Wing. And, Fuzzy and, Wing. And, and Mother said she never saw 
a, a, a part so embellished, <laughs> but then you were Joe, a natural actor. You yeah. never really, I per- never pursued. You it. never pursued it, but she said, "Whoa, yeah. Joe was." Funny. <laughs> that was so funny. How about uh, Rice and Marion when they did that? Anything, Anything you, you could do, do oh, I that could was, do better. And, you know, and I hated that at the time. I know. You know I was like, like but, uh, you know. Yeah. But that was adolescence, not yeah. you. Yeah. But we were people people still remember that. I I've, people have like <laughs> 15 years after saying, still, I yeah. remember. Yeah. Anything you, you can, can do, do that. I can do that. No, you can't. Yes, yes I, can. I can. No, you yeah. can't. That was actually clever, Dad, or maybe it was, oh, yeah. who's no, if it was Mother's it idea or whatever. I can see it. I have mostly um, recall people talking about Greenwood and that, you know, here we were basically on the parking lot of Holy Name. My memories there were, first of all, being on the playground, you know, you could see all the activity of the uh, then burgeoning holy name was thriving at the time they had three sections per grade and it was huge uh, big operation and um but i the the things i remember mom telling me was that i must have been a bit of a terror um really joe yeah. you <laughs> but and the funny thing is the freedom you know back you know mom would just let us go at that age we were must have been what four and you know i remember you know, playing on the playground. I remember I loved climbing, so I would, there was a basketball hoop and I ended up on top of the the rim. And I guess uh, some of the, uh, you know, parish ladies were aghast or afraid. And called mother and said, your your son is. And then in Holy Name Church itself, I used to walk, what do they call that? The balcony. Yeah. And uh, uh, people gave the women in church reason to pray. So... (laughs) (laughs) My oldest memory really goes back to Iroquois, and for some bizarre reason, I think it was fear. There was a big hole in the backyard, I think, and or it was big to me at that age. Sure. And I looked down in it and I thought that could go all the way to China. I could, yeah. Right. And I think we were told to stay away from it, so it was particularly attractive, of course. Right now, what do you think is your first memory of Manor? The day we arrived, Same I here. remember. I was in a cowboy outfit and I had uh, two six shooters and a cowboy hat and all that. Went down to the river uh, and I, I thought this is like compared to Greenwood, which is a parking lot. Here we are basically in, in the woods. It, it was felt, like Nirvana. Like, yeah, it was. Yeah. It was kind of cool. You know, that's funny. My first memory is going to Manor Road the day we moved and running upstairs and there was the bedroom on, above the porch. And mother, they called it the pussy willow room because all the wallpaper was pussy willows. And I just remember running through and and there was so much space. And that is my... Yeah, it had windows on three sides too, if I recall. I know the porch was open on the three sides and you could see, you know, storms coming in. And we used to sit on the porch and, and be protected from the, uh, the elements, but still was enjoying them. Enjoying them. Do you remember your first communion? Vaguely. Again, the pictures kind of jog my memory a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew it was a big occasion. Um, I remember looking because the girls were lined up in yeah. one and you were in the other line yeah. and looking over and seeing you and just being, you know, like they dressed us like brides with the special white yes. dress and the veil. But someone gave me a mother of pearl or fake mother of pearl prayer book. And I was like, Okay, it doesn't get better than this. No, no. I have a veil, a white dress, new pant leather shoes, and a prayer book. I remember confirmation. 
my confirmation sponsor was Bill. And, and my confirmation name is Williams. Awesome. Now. And, you know, Bill and I are still close. Oh, yeah. Um, I've always looked up to Bill. You know, his character is, uh, he's funny. Before that, though, is going to kindergarten. Remember, Lee, going to kindergarten was a big thing. We went to Adams Elementary. That was also, we had that incident with the bathtub. Well, I think, <laughs> no, I think we should talk about that because I remember Kathy was in charge and she said, Mary, go down to the laundry room and get some suds. We had this huge, like commercial size uh, laundry detergent thing mm-hmm. to c- get the detergent to make a bubble bath sure. for us. Yeah. And so I came upstairs and I remember sprinkling. I don't know how, but the cup that was like a glass cup fell into the tub and you were sliding back and forth. Why I wasn't yet in the tub, I probably, you probably were having so much fun and I, you know, cause we always took our tubs together. Right. And then all of a sudden the water turned red. And <laughs> for some reason you didn't feel the pain, but the cup had broken. And how many stitches did you get? It was over a hundred in my, uh, basically on my right leg. Do you remember who actually took you to um, the hospital? You know, I don't. I remember it was St. Joe's Pontiac, or it was then called St. Right. Joe's Pontiac. I don't remember any severe pain. What no. I remember is embarrassment because all they did was wrap my right leg. Otherwise, I was in my birthday suit. Yeah, it was oh. kind of a double trauma because we're leaving home for school for the first time. We're going on a bus, but we didn't go together. So we were twice separated. Yeah. Right? Separated from home and then separated yeah. from each other going to... Yeah. our first uh, educational experience. Well, I want to officially apologize to you right now for having that cup fall into the... <laughs> I don't know how that happened, but well, Mary, I just... I remember you, feeling responsible. You like, always kept me in stitches. <laughs> I remember Sister Hermes in third grade. Were you in my class in third grade or did they separate us? I can't remember. I think we had Hermes together. I, I remember so. having Hermes. So. And I remember that was the year JFK was assassinated. Yes. I remember being in the room. That's a very vivid, vivid memory. memory. And they were playing it over the PA system. Yes. Of course, he was, you know, iconic. Well, he was Catholic. Hero, Irish, well, Irish Catholic. Catholic the yeah, first yeah. Irish Catholic uh, yeah. president we ever had. Yeah. Like, I remember uh, Kennedy... Um, being at the corner of Manor and Woodward, where Kennedy's motorcade, when he was campaigning, came up Woodward. No was, yeah, way, Joe. That's way. Right? I never heard that. Yeah. It was huh. a big, big deal. That was. No, see, time. I wasn't part of that. Of course, you, you had no fear of Woodward Avenue. Why don't, we, <laughs> why don't we share what you would do crossing Woodward? So we, we lived on Manor Road, which was right off of um, Woodward. It's where Hunter separates from Woodward mm-hmm. and so you had the eight lanes of with an island the boulevard right. uh four north four south and then you had another two lanes for that offshoot that went to oak. um that went to oak that took you into the holy name into uptown birmingham yeah so, and for fun didn't you just close your eyes and yeah i just you know, would Seriously. close my eyes so i'd look both ways but I, then you, I would count on yeah, a lot and yeah Run full blast uh, always, with my eyes closed. <laughs> you were fierce mm. or crazy. Crazy. Or a little likely. bit of both. Yeah. I also remember in third grade, that's when I fell in love with Paul McCartney. Paul! A Paul, Paul! And I remember on Ed Sullivan, we being in the in the den. Yeah. And I, I was unabashedly in love. I mean, seriously, as much as a third grader can be in love, I was convinced I was going to marry him. I, and the, my brothers, you among them, would go, Oh, Paul! Paul! <laughs> 
Genius. making fun of me. And Katie O'Hara, uh, we both wanted to marry Paul. So competition. What, it was, it was just bad, we shared fierce. This, this fierce. But isn't that funny? It was third grade. Now, how about Sister Marietta, the principal? Well, my recollection in contrast was Mother Malachi before her. Yes. Was almost in my mind's eye, uh, you know, a stereotypical, stern, almost ethereal. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah like, but like, yeah. Floating through the hallway. danger. You know, I mean, you didn't for want me, to mess. You didn't want to mess. So you, she you might send to... you directly to perpetrate. Totally, yeah. <laughs> so, and she had the power to do that. I think. Yeah, she was. She was scary. Mm. Now, how about Sister Marietta? Yeah, I have special fondness for her because we always had this cat and mouse game. Because I was, you know, quite mischievous. <laughs> really, Jerry? Yeah, yeah. You and she, she knew I was behind ninety percent of the stuff, but she could never catch me. <laughs> she couldn't have so, get proof. But then she did finally catch me and Tim Hursley. It's actually me. Tim was just a witness. Uh, but I was spraying the first grade windows, you know, uh, off the parking lot, back to Holy Names parking lot. I was through mustard uh, onto the windows, and she caught me. Yellow-handed, I guess you'd say. Oh my God! So, but I'm bumped. So but bumped. Yeah, but you're busted. But yeah, but she was so. I can remember her being so pleased at nailing me, and um, and I, you know, of course, had to admit it. And, uh, yeah, she had proof. <laughs> she had proof uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, and I was guilty as charged. Do you uh, remember what the punishment was? Yeah, well, of course, I had to clean all oh. the windows, so uh, that was mustard. one of the, te- yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> you play, you pay, Joe. Yeah, yeah. I remember, good. I think it was seventh grade, and I was on the uh, you know cheerleading team and loved it. And of course, I talked too much in class. Can you imagine it, Joe? Not you. Yeah, I did. I got in big trouble, and she grounded me from cheerleading because I was disruptive in the class talking too much. And that's it, Mary. And I remember like, seriously, like trying to negotiate and that, yeah. No, Marietta, Yeah. she handed down the law and you had to follow it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I remember we had detention or after school detention at Holy Name. I was so impatient that I, I turned the clock ahead so that the detention would end sooner than it otherwise would. Joe, that was clever. That was clever, except that I wasn't too clever because they didn't set it back. So the next day, everyone was being marked tardy in that classroom. And oh, they finally is that put, true, Joe? Yeah. Oh, they, they finally put two and two together. And, Gee, uh, wonder who did that? Yeah, yeah. That would be Joseph, yeah. number 15, yeah. not just a number. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A cell number, maybe. How about uh, Manor Road and the meal times? Oh, I just so look forward to that. First of all, Dad always wanted meals at six o'clock sharp. Everyone had, you know, they're basically assigned seating at this huge table. And it was an event I just very much look forward to. Particularly, I loved hearing Bill and Ed talk about their Brother Rice experiences. And so these brothers that came to full life in my imagination about what Brother Rice is like. Well, yeah, because they were eight, nine years older than us. Right, so th- so this would be like something to look forward to, and this yeah. is you know really cool. And Like, what are we gonna discover today? Exactly. <laughs> and so. don't you remember uh, our brother Ed pulling up his shirt? Yeah. Because he has a very hairy chest and we'd all scream. Yeah, And, and they my- called it the rat's nest. And then, what they did? Yeah, it's because it looked, right. No, it was, I know, but I didn't. I yeah, don't that, remember yeah, that. It was that gross. Um, <laughs> and then I remember Ed. I think it was Ed or Bill. I think it was Ed that uh, we were we served as napkins. So he would 
take our no <laughs> he would wipe his mouth with okay. uh, our shirts the stories were unbelievable uh and given that number of people i mean it was it was totally the best entertainment i've ever witnessed in my life was the daily meals with the family yeah and what you didn't want to be as close to dad because or if he assigned seating next to dad you were in trouble you were in trouble or you, you were within arms reach you were literally within arms reach and usually if you weren't being good behavior you could sit near mother but if you were uh being uh under scrutiny it was next to dad yes they did run a tight ship. And, they had to. I mean, it was like, dad, that was the other thing is dad, you know, having raised uh, all these kids, uh, wanted to get a license to be able to teach at Holy Name. So of all the people in the world, he had to go to school for adolescent psychology, I remember. Yes. And, and then in that, with that experience, he had realized that the way he was raised and the way he was raising us might have been a little too disciplinary. Yeah. too physical well, we all, and in in but he backed off he was he, he did was, he, he, he was you know joe that's such a, a he I adapted think he adapted and which is amazing because when you're little you don't realize i remember mother saying you know you, the kids were going through their thing but as they, we were going through our thing they were going through theirs sure and it is if that makes me think of a story that i did not come home right after school i was in fifth grade no seventh grade and i called because there were no cell phones and bert bridget Birdie answered the phone. I said, now, uh, Bridget, tell mom I'm at Teresa Mills playing and I'll be home at six. Well, she never told her. Well, Bridget was a little girl, like yeah, yeah. what, little, like second grade or something. And uh, never got the message. So I walked in and mother's, the refrain was, uh, she said, Jack, you need to teach Mary a dance. And in the laundry room, he had me dance. Now it wasn't with the shillelagh, but it was with his slipper. And I remember, I remember saying, oh my God. And he goes, you're using the Lord's name in vain. Boom. And, um, <laughs> and, and it was very unusual for any of the girls. Oh, yeah. Now there very were times I for sure deserved it, but I was like, I, I'm innocent. Like what? And, but that is a wonderful point that dad did adapt. And he really, mother said, actually he cried because of course the tough Irish way, the way his parents, you know, what is it? Spare the child or spare the rod. You spoil the child. And, right. and there was physical discipline. And then, no doubt. But then he, he really did. But given the number of people alone, I mean, even if the norm was reason with your child, how do you reason with, you know, 14 individuals at the same time? You don't, you know, so no. there had to be structure. There had to be. There was a lot of there structure. There had to be discipline. I remember in high school, uh, in the kitchen at man around and saying mom is, is dad who he seems he is like and she understood my question like is he really that fervent and good she said yes he was well this again goes back to holy name when you know the cat and mouse with uh, marietta she knew too that as soon as she could catch me she would could send me right to my dad who was just down the hall yep. and there would be severe consequences I and mean, right. so You'd get, um, I don't know if you call it double jeopardy, but <laughs> you'd, get, you'd get disciplined by the school yeah. and then you would get disciplined yet again by dad uh, or the threat thereof. You know, right. Be and then and then think of all the, the church changing and going from the beautiful, daily Gregor beautiful Gregorian mass, chant all the rituals, and, yes. all the mystery, all the that. The chapel veils. Yeah. 
and then to uh, to experience that. And that was quite traumatic for both mom and dad because they Very. were both raised in the... Dad was a liturgical specialist. I oh, mean, he was. He was people. a liturgist. He truly totally was. was. He, he knew theologian. more about yep. liturgy than a lot of priests. priests that, in fact, most priests. That's true. And attended more that's, liturgies actually, than most priests. I never thought of that, Joe. Do you remember him ever saying, I love you? No, no. He was, yeah. again, as you described, he was... He expressed his feelings through actions, I would say, rather than words. He was very taciturn. He was very, he didn't elaborate and he didn't, he was like one of those, you know, speak softly, but carry a big stick yeah, kind of. Terse. And of course, the elephant in the room is our mother who uh, didn't give fa our father much uh, time or playtime, <laughs> airtime, you know, because she was so domineering and gregarious, loquacious, and just, you know, she kind of... Uh, she was the op She was totally verbal, and, and he was not. Oh, I know. I have a wonderful memory. I think we were in fifth grade, and we went uh, to visit. Anne was waitressing at the Hedges. Upstate which New York. Which was viewed in the Adirondack Mountains. Right. And it was, I think, you, me, and Claire in the back seat, and mother and dad, dad drove us. I think we went to the Hedges first. I think so. And And... So the Hedges was this gorgeous resort and our uncle, Jim, Monsignor Callahan, would go there every summer and he treated us. And I'll, I'll just never forget like having food served to you with waitresses and they had linen tablecloths and wonderful experience. And of course, getting to see Anne and yeah. then... First of all, the Adirondacks that, that time of year, I mean, it was a go-to place for people to vacation and this was high level vacation. And it was kind of reminded me too that how Uncle Jim, being a prominent prelate in the Syracuse diocese, knew all of these people and was well wired, and particularly with the Catholics. And it was special for us because given the number of kids, we didn't have that necessarily one-on-one -on -one. One -on -one time that you would have on this long drive to New York right. with mom and dad and only- Or three on three, one, three on three. 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 No, it's two, two on three. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we were young when Fishy died and uh, we didn't have the close connection. And the funny thing there was we were always told by lots of people that like, for instance, Jim and, and I were very similar in stature and maybe even personality mm -hmm. to, um, uh, to Fishy Callahan. I was fortunate enough to be able to to go back to Oswego from time to time because I used to visit Uncle Chuddy quite a bit, and so we would always go through Oswego. I remember hitchhiking with Kevin from Detroit right. to Oswego, Tim Hursley, Joe Forian and I went through Oswego on the way to visit the Mad Monk. Oswego in the summer is itself sort of a resort uh, town and has become more and more so since um, you know, since that era, but... Uh, it's a great part of our history. Mm -hmm. And I know, uh, and, and very brave of our parents to um, move from their beloved, small, protective town to come to Detroit was... No, it shows you the courage and the really kind of pioneering spirit they had to... Yeah. And yet Detroit at the time was booming and you could get a, a decent wage. Right. In fact, I remember the old story about him talking to the first guy who hired him was that O'Rourke? Yeah. O'Rourke. And O'Rourke was trying to query Dad about, you know, did he, was he familiar with the encyclicals relating to liturgy? 
And uh, Dad said, yes, very much so. Uh, and he said to O'Rourke, he says, are you familiar with the just wage encyclicals? So, <laughs> so it, was, it was kind of the, oh, I forgot they, about they that. battled uh, encyclicals. In fact, I think a lot of uh, Catholic families relied on religious education and the nuns in particular to be part of the moral formation of kids and that they'd have this structure, discipline, knowledge of the, mm-hmm. of the Catholic Church. And um, that's why I think the, they produce such fantastic, not just students, but fantastic citizens. And, right. um, and they were just uh, indispensable to the growth of um Especially the you know Irish Catholic who were not treated all that well right. um, historically uh, to get mainstream and ending culminating in Kennedy's uh, say election they never left a swiggle in fact a swiggle came to them so you know I remember vividly um, first of all Nana Callahan living with us and then Uncle Jim living with us. Uh, Uncle Chuddy visiting all the time. So, you know, when we think of 18 kids, one of 18, but there's also not only the um, Jim's kids who lived with us uh, in a very, you know, very special relationship there. And this idea of extended family, that the the social contract extended upwards to where you Mm -hmm. took care of your close relatives. And so taking mom, having to have her mother-in-law love with her. And she was, <laughs> she was a character. That uh, was not easy. Not easy. And again, on top of all, everything else. And then Uncle Jim had his medical issues and he had a, t- a really tough time, lived with us uh, for an extended period of time. And then after the tragedy of Eleanor, you know, all the Jim's three kids coming and living with us and essentially becoming younger siblings so the right. the the idea of the family and how that all worked together was is, is something to well extraordinary to i think the the capacity that both mother and dad had obviously to have 18 children and that dad had two church jobs st bernard's and st catherine's and mother was substituting too and the older kids and margaret john yeah all 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 those guys having to and then you know and they pitched in i mean it wasn't you know they didn't get an allowance they gave allowance the capacity and this underlying like a beat you know almost like a the, um, the accompaniment was this extraordinary faith and also, they always did the next right thing. Yeah. And um, what an example as far as what family is about. You're right. Mm-hmm. Uh, when UJ, Uncle Jim, Monsignor Callahan, had a, well, he had a nervous breakdown and mother went to visit him and she said, this won't do. This is not going to do. We're going to bring him home. And bringing someone who had, you know, mental challenges, and they were always close. Mother and UJ loved each other, and I mean, can, I, I, he was a brilliant guy who yeah, burned out. He did. You know, they he was again overworked. in the service of the Catholic Church. Yeah, what a legacy they did leave with us. You know, it's interesting when you're living in it, you don't quite see it, especially we were young. And of course, people say, "How did they do it? How did they do it?" Well, that's the other remarkable thing I think <clears throat> that has to be noted is that. As remarkable as mom and dad were, and they were, um, this idea of the faith and that when it seemed like it couldn't sustain itself, that when people do ask that question, because it's a very good question, and the, the answer is fairly mysterious in the sense is it shouldn't have happened. But what did happen, I think, is at those crucial moments, friends and priests and 
did, um, I remember Father Kowalski being very uh, helpful to mom and dad in being able to get me in a road in the first place. There was that greater sense of Catholic community. Exactly. And, and um, that came and helped. And we always had, when I look back at it, for the most part, wonderful neighbors. Can you imagine living next to a, like the float in uh, that we did in uh, high school? We did, we built that. Actually, it was a life size. It was life size. It was life fully. And it, it uh, for field day at Brother Rice. Yeah. And it, it uh, I think it spurred the local economy. Um, there was several companies formed. The Midnight Lumber Company is one of them. And uh, <laughs> that thing, it was it was truly uh, quite the structure. Right. And it the, was an engineering feat just to get it from Manor Road to Brother Rice, where it was adjudicated. Right. And, and unfairly given second place, I might add. No. I'm telling Who you. Who got first? The seniors. That's so rude. That's so rude. Lift the signals to get under the signals that I remember at Big Beaver Court and Woodward just to get it under to get down to Lasser and, right. and uh, to Brother Rice. Well, I must note to our listeners that uh, you have to go to the photo gallery because there are pictures of this that we're not making this up. It was a life-size church that, yes, my twin brother and his It had a steeple, the yeah. <laughs> detachable steeple. It had stained glass windows. It, uh, did it have I real, had, it real had, stained glass? Yeah. Oh, come on. And uh, where did we get these stained glass windows? Uh, they materialized They somehow. were donated somehow. They somehow, somehow donated. Voluntarily donated. I and it got second place. Yeah, they That's got, just they got screwed by the brothers. Oh, you did. People to this day talk to, to say, old high school friends. Um, that's a very, very vivid memory for them. Yeah. And, uh, it's up there. You couldn't do it anymore. And mom really, if the truth be known, loved it. Oh, because she it loved was the it. action. And the, oh, yeah. I I think I'm a, uh, blessed to have had such a beautiful upbringing. And it wasn't all fun, but it was mostly very meaningful and very, I think they did a great job in forming us. And we try to do the similar job with her and the beat hopefully yeah. goes on. Yeah. And as mother would say, and the beat goes on. Mm. And how did living in an affluent uh, us when we, you know, of course, we grew up in Birmingham. How how did how they navigated us with all these very uh, wealthy people of means, and and we had limited resources. They had limited resources, and I never felt uh, less than or poor me. You're a Callie, and You're tougher than that. You know, kind of. Yeah. You, no, it's true. You're not spoiled, you know. Yeah, they. she instilled in us, um, they both did, yeah. a real sense of pride. And it pride in our faith and... And, and in the family. I mean, there was, oh, like that was a Callahan, big thing. Callahan pride, I'd say. Yes, yeah. yeah. And, and that's a funny thing to talk about it in retrospect is that I just took this all as these were givens. Right. You know, this is... Yeah. This was my experience during the time and I never really gave it too much thought. Now, and... In retrospect, oh, I see yeah. how remarkable it is it was. compared to, especially again today, and mm -hmm. how people are uh, living and um, the lack of faith. I would say it was a different era, different era, and not perfect, but so beautiful. Yeah. And I think the one thing you were right about talking about Vatican II, and and it was very strange. I don't know if you, I remember, you know, the daily mass, chapel veils, and then. All of a sudden, we're not going to mass every day, and you don't have to wear the chapel veils. And it then the, the priest is facing us, and the music went from Gregorian chant, which I loved because it was in our 
it was tattooed on us, you know, it was in our blood. And then uh, I think it was also very, as you say, adaptable that uh, especially our father, who was the minister of music, uh, had to kind of go with the flow and and he uh, was selective and did, he picked great music, oblique contemporary, not Gregorian chant. But I remember with the uh, guitar masses, he called them Hoot Nanny, Hoot yeah, Nanny yeah, masses. Yeah. But they were adaptable. I mean, that was really all of us. And then the nuns, all of a sudden, we can see their hair. You know, the veils are showing their hair and you can see their legs. And it was, uh, we, we went right through. I remember, I think it was, we were eighth grade when the nuns, Sister Dorothy, all of a sudden, she had a mm. veil where you could see she had bangs and mm. she actually had legs on her there. I mean, it was... Uh, uh, there, there, the that mystery, and in, in, in a strange way, there was a disappointment in that. Like before the Catholic Church, you, you, cremation was like a mortal sin, and totally, yeah. and and then now it's just the change. Like you say, the people have changed. The culture. They, they well. meant ashes to ashes, but not that quickly. <laughs> <laughs> that was good, Joe. Yeah, yeah. That was. I've said it before. I think really the greatest gift our parents gave were each other that totally yeah. and um we did raise each other and they were hysterical mother was so funny dad oh. was pithy he was you know he would come out with some hysterical remarks and yeah i think that's the one thing that kind of in a way i don't know how to put it but it ties it all together is that you cannot have this strong faith this devotion this education, all of this family stuff without having humor. Yeah. And I think the family had humor in spades. Maybe, yeah. maybe too much humor. No, but, I don't think too but, much. And but the idea that you got to laugh at yourself. Yeah. Because you can't take yourself too seriously. Too seriously. It, it's a mistake. It, yeah. It still is a mistake. It, it won't serve you well. Hey, remember to follow our pictorial by going to oneof18notjustanumber.com. Our next episode, number 11, A Big Heart and the Big Move. You will meet Teresa Maureen, number 16, Not Just a Number, and you may join us as we make the significant journey from Detroit to the northern suburb of Birmingham.